1: Everyone, it's Jack from Cultaholic Back again It's time for Matches of the Month July I'm arguably a week late uh, but and, and I will apologise for that But it was very busy In the build-up to the biggest party of the summer And everything I'm going to have to rethink SummerSlam actually And wonder whether any of those matches Were good enough to land on next month's edition Of this very podcast But as you know It's Matches of the Month July edition right now And I'm going to say it I think, along with possibly January, and maybe the WrestleMania weekend special that we did, I think this might be the most stacked month of the year so far. It's certainly in the conversation. There's been all kinds of stuff going on. WWE pay-per-views, there's been big shows from AW, there's been big stuff going on in NXT, there's been big stuff in Japan, not one, but two Big annual tournaments, as well as big matches from many other promotions as well around the world. I'm talking Noah. I'm talking CMLL, I'm talking about North Wrestling in Newcastle, which I was fortunate enough to attend in person. Their biggest show of, of that promotion's life so far, really, Thunderstruck, which... Uh, I'm not just saying this was an excellent wrestling show and a very fun night to go and watch a bit of live wrestling Um, but I'll talk about that later on in this podcast so now it's time for my Matches of the Month And there's only one place to start, really, and that is the big show of July, which was WWE's Money in the Bank show. Money in the Bank's best match, in my opinion, and in the opinions of, I think, most people who watch the show as well, was the Bloodline Civil War. The Usos versus Roman Reigns and Solo Sokoa. Now, when I first set, like sat down to plan out the running order of this podcast, I was like, oh, Bloodline Civil War has to go first. Then SummerSlam happened, and suddenly everyone, myself included, everyone's just a bit down for the first time, really, on this whole Bloodline storyline because SummerSlam saw an uninspiring twist in the tale, I think. Um, whereas this this Bloodline Civil War match in London, this was a real high point, up there with the Sami Zayn stuff, up there with with Jay's initial turn on Roman Reigns as well and Jimmy, um, and this was them obviously coming together to take on Roman and Solo. So before SummerSlam, I was really high on this match and now I'm having to kind of fight my own instincts to be like, oh, but was it that good after we've just seen Roman versus Jay end in unsatisfactory fashion? But I think this was still good, wasn't it? The the Bloodline Civil War match. Similar in feeling, I think, to that uh, Night of Champions match in Saudi Arabia between Owens and Zayn and the Bloodline where you've got... One team that the crowd are unbelievably behind. And then you've got the heel team, which contains Roman Reigns. So they're kind of the favorites by default. However, obviously, we kind of we kind of hope and sort of sneakily suspect that the babyface team might pull something out of the bag. That's what we got here at Money in the Bank as well. Like most main events in the Roman Reigns title reign, especially in the last year or two, this started off real slow. <laughs> but... Uh similar to the match at the end of WrestleMania Night 1, Owens and Zayn versus the Usos, this was worth it down the stretch. But in this case, it was the Usos getting the rub, making their big comeback and everything. And the stretch was absolutely electrifying, to be honest. Um, but even the slow bit was entertaining. Because sometimes in these Roman Reigns matches, you kind of got to get through the slow start. You've got to get through your vegetables to get to the delicious dessert, haven't you? But in this case, even the vegetables were tasty. That's right. Even the vegetables were tasty. And I think a big reason for that was the crowd. Um, Roman, and Roman as well, the crowd and Roman were equally um, to be praised here because Roman's interactions with UK crowds is always fantastic, to be fair. And and as I say, it really spiced up that long opening stretch of the match. Obviously, then the latter half was absolutely great. And the storyline development of Jay pinning Roman was unquestionably the right call in my mind. Now, looking back at SummerSlam, well... (laughs) We've gone wrong somewhere, haven't we? But I don't think Money in the Bank was that wrong turn at all. Uh, Money in the Bank did everything asked of it, and uh, the main event really delivered. I enjoyed the show on the whole as well, Money in the Bank, but looking back, I don't know if apart from the main event, there was a particularly groundbreaking match that would have cracked my top 10 of July. Um, the two Money in the Bank ladder matches, I thought, were both good, both enjoyable, but had kind of opposite problems. So the action in the men's one was generally pretty good all the way through, but then the finish was very deflating, wasn't it? Because everyone really wanted LA Knight to win, and then Damien Priest won. Now, in hindsight, I don't think that's too bad an idea because it leads to this interesting dynamic within the Judgment Day. But on the other hand, you can't argue with the fact that had LA Knight won, the roof would have been blown off the place. For, uh, to be fair, for that to be the case, we'd then have to kind of propel LA Knight into a storyline that you could argue he's not ready for, but you could also argue, if you're popular, you're ready for it. So maybe he should have won. Anyway, I thought the women's ladder match had the opposite problem. So the action throughout, I wasn't a big fan of. I thought there was a it was a bit all over the place, but the finish was absolutely excellent with Io using the handcuffs. Very unique. I've never seen a finish like it before. Uh, it was shot really well. The camera managed to capture everything and all three women involved in that big finale played their roles to perfection. So I've got to say that Eo, uh, EO Sky uh, win was phenomenal and I'm glad to see her now be... WWE Women's Champion as well, as we just saw at SummerSlam. But yeah, uh, the Bloodline Civil War match I thought was the best match. Oh, uh, and Gunter's match versus Riddle was okay, but like, it wasn't a Gunter IC title defense like we've seen against Drew, like we've seen against Sheamus, like we've seen against Drew and Sheamus. (laughs) So it was still good. It didn't quite live up to the hype, possibly. If they were allowed to, Gunter and Riddle could have somewhere in the region of a five-star match, and I don't know why they weren't allowed to. So yeah, the Bloodline Civil War match was the best, and I don't think we should allow SummerSlam to kind of tarnish our opinion of the Usos versus Roman and Solo because it was a really good tag match.
0: Five minutes remain. We are fifty-five minutes in. I said we were approaching now, I didn't know we'd be that close. What happens if this remains 1-1? The champions hold on to the titles, is that right? Champions retain on a draw, absolutely. Oh, there's no way, that's not fair. Oh! Casting in. But hold on. Look at the thinking about a draw. Two. Jay, there's five minutes, you got five minutes.
1: (laughs) Now we get to a section that I've called Big Tag Matches. Because we've just talked about a big tag match, Bloodline Civil War. But July was a month where big tag matches were kind of a recurring theme. The first two I want to mention are in AEW. And they concern the two wonderful tag teams of FTR and Bullet Club Gold. Especially the version of Bullet Club Gold represented by Juice Robinson and Jay White, because you've also got the guns now in Bullet Club Gold who bring their own flavor of excellent tag matches. But this was very much Jay and Juice doing the good wrestling and just being really, really good, hanging in there and more with FTR, more than living up to their end of the bargain. And FTR excelled as always. So yeah, we had the first FTR versus Bullet Club Gold match, which I believe was in a like a title eliminator sort of stipulation where... If Bullet Club Gold lose, they don't get a shot at the title, but if they win, they are number one contenders. And it was a really ambitious match. It was given more time than you may have first imagined, considering it was just on TV, and it was really good. And then we got to the finishing stretch, and it just sort of tailed off slightly towards the end, didn't it? I feel like I'm being harsh saying that, but I saw so many tweets and stuff all agreeing. Everybody seemed to have the same opinion of this match, which was that it was an amazing tag team match, which down the stretch just tried to do slightly too much. So, sorry, guys, I don't have any hot takes. That's exactly how I feel as well. I'm just agreeing with the consensus there. Um, However, I thought the result was a good one, even if the ending tried to go a little bit too far and there were slight miscommunications here and there. Because the the result, Bullet Club Gold winning, meant that Jay and Juice got a title shot, which is the next match we're going to talk about. Two out of three falls. Again, FTR versus Jay and Juice. This was a proper epic tag match. Now, one of my favorite matches in modern WWE history was the uh, two out of three falls match between The Revival, a.k.a. FTR, and DIY at NXT TakeOver, I want to say Toronto. So when you combine FTR and the two out of three falls stipulation, we saw them do great things with the, the Briscoes last year as well with that stipulation. So I was really excited. FTR and two out of three falls just goes together. It's a great stipulation for a great team. Now, I don't think it quite hit the levels of NXT TakeOver, but it was certainly another classic tag team match to add to FTR's now unbelievable back catalogue. If you look at FTR's matches they've had, man, in just the past, like, eight years or so, they've had incredible feuds with DIY, like I mentioned, Alpha Academy, is not Alpha Academy, American Alpha as well in, uh, in NXT. They've had the feud with the Bucks, which has been up and down, but the matches have always delivered, in my opinion. They've had the feud with the Briscoes last year, which just propelled them into a different stratosphere. And now they're having this feud with Bullet Club Gold, who, let's be clear, have not set the world on fire that much, or at least didn't at first when they they arrived in AEW. Because everyone was ready to jump on Jay White and criticise him for some reason. I'm not quite certain why. I think it's because he built up a lot of hype as a main event guy in New Japan. And then when he came over, a lot of people kind of were wanting him to fail and were ready for him to fail. Similar to the vibe I got with Adam Cole when he jumped over from WWE. Everyone's kind of going, oh, is this guy's good, is he? And then kicks off when he's not immediately becoming world champion and stuff. But I think Jay White has slowly but surely proven everybody very wrong. Well, not everybody, but he's proven the haters wrong. Um... And Juice Robinson has just exceeded expectations right off the bat. He's kind of been the opposite story where they came in together, but people were expecting Jay to be the one that grabbed attention. But Juice just kind of went, no, I'm going to be the mouthpiece here. I'm going to be the big flashy attention grabbing one. And then Jay's more in the background just being rock solid, an excellent, excellent professional wrestler. Um, And I'm so glad that they were able to have a match like this one and that FTR were willing to go well, this match lasted nearly an hour, didn't it? We're willing to go that long? And the AW were willing to put on a match this long on TV. Whoever is in charge of collision. <coughs> CM Punk. No, I know it's Tony Khan, but I have a sneaky theory that CM Punk's running the show. If you look at his Instagram stories, he promotes that show like it's his own, like he's booking it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to say anymore. Anyway, uh, yeah, FTR versus Bullet Club Gold, two out of three falls, was I think certainly a match of the year contender. I'll just say that now. I know I said it didn't quite live up to DIY versus the Revival but like I said that's one of my favorite WWE matches in recent memory. This was this was in the same ballpark. It was excellent. It 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 built slowly and obviously it had to build slowly because it was so long. But I liked how each fall of the of the three had its own rhythm and its own style. So the first one was very back and forth and then just as FTR started to press the advantage bang the heels got the fall out of nowhere. Second fall more heel dominated now. Um with Jay and Juice really grinding their opponents down. But then uh, they go for for that 2-0 victory. They try and immediately end FTR's title reign, only for FTR to level it up. So the two first falls had kind of opposite themes going on. One team kind of getting the edge, but the other team winning the fall, if you see what I mean. And then the last fall, with everybody just absolutely exhausted, was great stuff, really epic stuff down the stretch. This will be some people's match of the year, and I can't blame them there's just a couple of little things holding it back slightly for me. So, spoilers, you will see that this has has cracked my top 10, my my 2023 uh, annual yearly, you know, big top 10 of the year. And I'm getting flustered because this match was so good. This match has cracked my top 10, but it's not at the top of my top 10, if you see what I mean. I thought it was a match of the year, but maybe not the match of the year. Uh, And those things that kind of held it back for me were... I don't know if the finish was maybe as climactic a moment as it could have been, but it was still pretty damn effective. Uh, And then Cash Wheeler as well, for some reason, kind of shaking off. he, He really shook off the effects of the first fall a bit too fast for my liking. Like as soon as the second fall began, he was just up and fighting again. And I'm not sure what that was about. Maybe they just wanted to keep the pace relatively high in that moment. I don't know. Anyway, those minor criticisms aside, really, this was a brilliant match. So there we go. And it wasn't even FTR's only... Those weren't even their two only notable tag matches of the month of July. That's what a year they're having because obviously, July brought us the wonderful bit of sports entertainment that was FTR versus MJF and Adam Cole Bay Bay. Right
0: here, right now, if we stay on the same page that we've been on, you are looking at the new AEW World Tag Team Champions. Because we're better than you! Baby! FTR looking for the Shatter Machine! MJF! Oh, he sacrificed Cole to block the shatter machine. And he saved himself at the same time, but now he did him. Heatseeker blocked. O'Connor Two and par one. Do what you gotta do. Just do it, they best A force more powerful for than championships in the air. Love, friendship, admiration from a team that came up just short here tonight. But they leave Hartford with each other. Free, still be friends.
1: Tag titles on the line once again after MJF and Cole won that tag tournament with the, what was the name of it? Like the Blind Eliminator. Where the, you know, the one where the teams were randomly paired up. But it's obviously led to like AEW striking gold with this MJF-Adam Cole friendship storyline. It's been amazing, really funny, really dramatic, and really tense. We're all just waiting for something bad to happen. and And even more so, now that MJF has granted Cole that title shot in London at All In. So that's going to be very interesting indeed. Um, I watched this tag match immediately after the previous one. So I was catching up on on all the matches this month because I'd, I'd taken a, about a week off work and I missed the first the the hour-long match. So I caught up on that one. Then immediately after that, I watched FTR versus MGF and Cole, which was kind of like if the previous one was Oppenheimer. This was the Barbie equivalent. Like, it was lighter, but still very emotional and very entertaining in its own right. But it wasn't as bleak and, and epic and, you know, furious as Oppenheimer was, right? Oh, what am I trying to do? Um, anyway, this felt a lot shorter compared to the other big FTR matches of the month, obviously, but they packed a lot in Uh, FTR weren't even really the stars of the show here so while you could argue that they were very much the stars of the show in that hour long match defending their titles against two heels for nearly an hour in this case they took a backseat deliberately to allow you know the lightning in a bottle accidental babyface bromance of Cole and MJF to really shine which was a wise decision the match was great but as I say I think the real fireworks are still to come. I love the aftermath with MJF going, I blew it, I blew it, and Cole going, No, we blew it. And they're still friends for now, but like which one's gonna turn on the other? It's it's really, really good stuff. And the match this match was great as well. While we're on the topic of big epic tag team matches, I I should probably mention it was well, it wasn't just two on two, but it was it was a big, epic multi-man match. I should mention Blood and Guts, which I wanted to like more than I did. As many have mentioned, the production seemed to miss a lot of crucial stuff in this one. And as many have mentioned, Kota Ibushi's involvement was quite disappointing, which is a crazy thing to say because a few years ago, I'd have said he was one of the very, very best wrestlers in the entire world. Then he had a horrendous run of luck with injuries. And I'm hoping that this kind of blip in his form is more just him returning to the way he once was and not, not that he's just kind of, those injuries might have done damage that, you know, he'll never return to those heights. And that's a really sad thing to consider. But um, I hope it's not true. But we have to remember that Ibushi, despite looking about 20, is actually 40 or so. It's crazy how young he looks. So maybe maybe it'll take him a little while to get back to where he was. Um, It was still a very fittingly gruesome match, blood and guts, which, um, you know, which it had to be. But it still managed to be. And that was a fear I had because the elite can often be more about like, look how... Cool and excellent friends we are, and they really managed to get down and dirty with the Blackpool Combat Club here. So that that was good. Um, it was still a fittingly gruesome match, as I say, which brings me onto our next section because July was not short on scary, scary, gruesome matches. Let's talk about them.
0: New Japan Strong, the Death Rider, returns to Cork and Hall I bring the notorious 187 Homicide to face Desperado and the craziest man in the history of Japanese professional wrestling, the crazy monkey, Jun Kasai. In a match with no rules, a match with no limits. But beyond that, Should we survive, Desperado, since you called me out? Should we survive July 4th? I challenge you to one final match. A match where there is no winners. A match where there is only a survivor. One final conflict. July fifth, New Japan Strong, Cork and Hall, Final
1: Death. The first one that I want to talk about, the first scary, scary, gruesome match, was in New Japan, but it was New Japan Strong, but it was New Japan Strong in Japan. So New Japan Strong is New Japan's U.S.-based offshoot, but this was a show back in Japan. So it's like if if NXT UK was still active it's like if nxt uk did a show back in america if you see what i mean anyway uh this was uh the independence day event and it was so it's like if nxt uk had a show called like the queen's birthday and they had it in orlando um r.i.p the Queen. <laughs> oh my God, what have I done? Anyway, this match was El Desperado and Deathmatch Legend, Junkasai versus John Moxley and Homicide. All legendary, well, three legendary guys in their own right and El Desperado who, you know, in years to come may well be regarded as a legend because he's, he's on an incredible hot streak and has been for the past couple of years maybe actually now, I think about it. Um... Yeah, this was, this was a messy brawl, but you know you're going to get that going in. And the, uh, the, the venue was really interesting because it was in Currican Hall, which makes it smaller, more intimate, and it made it apparent here that the crowd were absolutely buzzing for this one. I don't think I've seen quite as bloodthirsty a New Japan crowd before. They were buzzing for this, especially for Jun Kasai, who, um, who ultimately won uh, alongside Desperado when the latter pinned Homicide. So Desperado got the win for his team, for Team Japan, I suppose. It wasn't the best match of the month or anything, but I thought it warranted a mention just on pure excitement and bloodlust. (laughs) Obviously, Junkasai and Homicide couldn't be quite as much these days, but especially Junkasai, but they still did their part whipping the crowd into a frenzy, and they still brought the brutality. But it all kind of set the scene for the following night's match, which I did slightly prefer. Um, That was a singles death match, and it was just the two i guess more active members of the previous night's match el desperado versus john moxley and i just think this deathmatch format often can lend itself better to the singles match Set up, especially in the case of these two, because the focus was then on these two guys rather than maybe a slight mistake the previous match had made, which was all four battling all over Currican Hall, the camera cutting between things, trying to catch everything. In this case, it was a death match and it was kind of unflinching. You couldn't look away, you couldn't escape to the other fight going on elsewhere. This was all about El Desperado and Moxie doing horrible things to each other. And massive credit to both men, by the way, because I can't begin to imagine what it's like doing even one. The death match, let alone two in consecutive days, like they must have been exhausted after these two matches and beaten up. This one was very cool. It was it was a different kind of death match vibe. It reminded me a bit of McFoley style death matches. So, elbow drops on the tables. And there was stiff tables, by the way, which refused to break, which is great. Uh, they had like a barbed wire board spot with both men landing in it together and being tangled in it very painfully. Again, reminded me of Foley, Foley and Terry Funk, that sort of stuff. Um, and obviously there was lots of blood. Moxley bled a lot, of course. <laughs> Um, There was cheese grater stuff going on, which was very, like, grisly to watch. The sticks in the head for Moxley, brilliant. (laughs) What a visual. I saw that getting shared about, although I can't remember if that was from this match or from the tag match the night before. Did he do the sticks thing in two consecutive nights? Oh, my God, if he did. What are you doing, John? Despite being, like, a, a death match, this one ended in more modern wrestling match style they're both kicking out of each other's signature moves then moxley hits a stomp which is no sold uh, and then a big lariat and then he hits the final death rider to put desperado away so yeah it ended like a new japan main event but most of it was like as i say like an old school mick foley style death match and that was very cool and it seems like the sort of thing moxley gets a kick out of doing and if he's happy (laughs) then he can do what he wants i'm not going to stop him Uh, The other big, scary, scary, gruesome match I want to mention to round off this little section was at GCW New Face of War, which obviously GCW are one of America's biggest indie promotions at the moment or like a collective of indie shows or themes. But this was again in Japan and it featured Joey Janela and Masashi Takeda, who I've heard heard people refer to Takeda as like a a modern great of deathmatch wrestling or like they say things like, I've seen people in various comment sections and stuff say that Takeda is like an excellent wrestler who just happens to be a deathmatch wrestler. Like he's very, very talented and chooses to channel that energy into making creative and horrible deathmatches, which is fair enough. So these these two are very silly men I've got in my notes here because this match was so glass-based. And I can deal with watching a lot of stuff in deathmatches and I can, you know enjoy it and I can still enjoy glass based ones, but of all of the stuff that gets used in these sort of matches, it's always glass that I find the hardest to watch or the, the most I think the most stupid. <laughs> like like um, I'm just like that can go so wrong so quickly. You land on it even just a little bit the wrong way, like, God, that's gotta be horrible. And you see the look of guys when they've finished glass death matches and they are torn to shreds. And I get that that's the point. And it is very compelling, I will admit. But my God, I would never, ever do that to myself. Jesus. So yeah, it's a really horrible and scary match. But as I say, so compelling. You kind of have to watch it. One of those ones where it's like, it's not two guys trying to out-pain the other. It's two guys trying to out-crazy the other. Like not, I can dish out more pain than you. I can take more pain than you. It's, I am legitimately more crazy than you are. There was a terrifying sequence of big moves done to Joey at the end onto a canvas that by this point of the match was just totally covered in shards of glass after so many light tubes had been smashed. So, you know, that was what it was. Um, and it was definitely worth a watch if that's your thing. I enjoy lots of types of wrestling and it's not my favorite type, but I can admit that it. there's a certain morbid curiosity when it comes to these sort of glassy matches. Not that I'd want to see them every week maybe, but... If you're going to do it, this was a pretty good example.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Hi, I'm Alan Partridge, and I drive a car, but not like this. Wait a minute. Good God Almighty! For God's sake! That car just ran over Austin! That car just ran over Austin! Let's have a look at what this idiot did in America. Is it the pain that keeps searching for me, or am I the one who searches for pain? Dragonov is headed to the Great American Bash against Carmelo Hayes for the NXT title. In the end, it doesn't matter because tonight, the world shall know pain. Carmelo, when I step into this ring, these people—they feel something. make you feel that the Great American Bash is defeat. It's one man's dynasty versus one man's destiny under the bright lights of the Great American Bash. Romero Hayes, after the Great American Bash, Trick will be all you have left after I take your NXT Championship.
1: Yes, now we move on to normal, ugh, normal singles matches. So we've talked about epic tag matches, and we've talked about death matches, and we've talked about uh, a tag team death match as well. Now we're gonna, ugh, now we're gonna talk about normal singles matches. And in this month of July, there were a lot of excellent normal singles matches. So we're breaking this into subsections, and we're starting off with the America section, and with Braun Breaker versus Ilya Dragunov on NXT. And the winner of this was going to go on to face Carmelo Hayes for the NXT Championship. And you know what? I didn't come into this one with the highest of hopes, and I felt very stupid afterwards. I think the reason my hopes, and, I, and that's not to do with the skills of the guys involved, because I think that is incredible, and I think Bron Breaker has amazing potential. Amazing potential, and is already very good. That's the scary thing. Like, he's still got room to improve, but he's already capable of having matches like this. So it wasn't to do with the the skill of the guys involved. I think it was just the storytelling because often on NXT, the storytelling can get in the way of of really talented dudes on the roster and and women as well because it's a really silly brand, isn't it? And often in NXT, actually, they make the mistake of its feuds going, of the brand's feuds going like over the top, way too over the top. And they they have lots of stupid storyline elements. They have loads of extra vignettes and extra things we don't need to see. And um, this had the opposite problem. This was just a one note storyline, which was who is more intense? Is it Ilya? Is it Braun? And I'm like, oh, can we not think of something a bit more creative than I'm more intense than you? No, I'm more intense than you. So it felt like a lazy way to arrive at the match. And then the match hugely over-delivered. Ilya is amazing, obviously. Braun is visibly improving as the months go on. And as I say, he's got loads of room to grow, even beyond that. And Breaker is so explosive that even maybe some of the weaker matches we've seen him have will still often have something to enjoy in them, like a huge spot, a big spear through the barricade, something like that. But then when he's paired with an opponent like Ilya, who's operating at an elite level on a consistent basis, then that just takes things to a whole new level. And that's what we saw here. I don't think this was like a perfect crisp clean match all the way through, but I didn't want it to be because it was two bruising, horrible bastards trying to out intense the other. And, and it was just so enjoyable. And I found the closing stre- like stretch legitimately quite thrilling. Uh, it was a big win for Dragunov, who looked like a monster having to summon like all of his strength to take down Braun, who I wouldn't suggest looked weak in defeat at all. I thought this was an amazing match and certainly one of my favorite matches of the month. And it led to the main event of the next big show, which was the NXT Great American Bash, which was Carmelo Hayes, versus Ilya Dragunov. Most people, I think, preferred this one to the Bron Breaker one. And this sounds a bit mad. I'm going to have to edge it just slightly to the Bron Breaker one. I know that sounds weird, but I think this match was the slightly worse of the two. Not that it wasn't a brilliant match because it still was. But yeah, I think this one, weirdly, like they seem to have more chemistry issues than Ilya and the less experienced Bron did, or the more raw Bron, because Carmelo's as polished as they come. And you'd think that him and Ilya would be able to put it together like a seamless match. But this one, there seemed to be one or two communication errors going on or little, little, I don't know, like one guy's thinking one thing and the other guy's thinking the other thing. I guess that's what a miscommunication is. It kind of worked, though, because they're still both really good and they pulled an amazing match out of the bag. And also, the big moments fully delivered. I'm thinking of that, um, it was like a codebreaker sort of moment where I think... Whoever took the move, I think maybe Dragunov, popped up like vertically up and down into the air like a pogo stick. It was a really good spot. There was also, I think, Hayes coming off the top and Dragunov countering with a power bomb, just spiking him into the canvas. At that point of the match, things were really kicking into a higher gear. I just think the moments building up to that bit and the moments in between big spots, I just think they kind of lost their way slightly. But it was kind of disguised well because the story of this match was... Messi. It was about both men desperate to beat the other and desperate to earn the other's respect and prove themselves and exhausting themselves trying to grind the other down. So it's not the worst kind of match for this thing to this sort of thing to happen. And both men were skilled enough to pull it out of the bag anyway. I also think I preferred the overall story of the match here to the breaker Dragonov match. But in terms of the minutiae of the match itself, uh, yeah, I preferred the the Breaker Dragon of One just because it was more smash mouth, it was more direct. This one was still very, very good, though. It was still excellent, I should clarify that. Right, where are we going next? Oh, we're heading to Ring of Honor.
0: Welcome, everyone, to the Cure Auto Insurance Arena. Death before it is honored. Oh my god! Now gravity is in control. Powerbomb! Dump castle. New television title battle on the way. To the- oh my God! Wow. Wait a second. No- yep. One oh, oh, so a- yeah. in the ring. My God. Double. Not the open. He's by Brian oh, God. oh, 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 yeah. your- oh. Yeah. Wow. and Stop! in his face with the boost! Stop! too great Brinkman, hit him There you go! Danger hanging in the balance! No! Nope. The oh, oh, goodness. Oh, oh,
1: goodness. Oh, oh, Two singles matches I want to talk about. Just before I do, I'll mention another multi-man match, which was the fight without honor between the Dark Order, Uno, uh, Silver and Reynolds, and then Stu Grayson, former member of the Dark Order, and his new pals, The Righteous, Dutch and Vincent. Um... That was just a big, silly brawl, but I liked it. Thought it was worth a bit of an honorable mention on this podcast. There was, like, big spots through tables and stuff, big, silly spots. There was blood. There was weapons. There was personal, dramatic storytelling between Uno and Grayson. And it was just a fun, uh, intense match. I liked it. But the two matches I really wanted to focus on as well were the two, I think, that immediately followed that one. And Ring of Honor's show this month, The Death Before Dishonor, was a weird show because there was such a lack of build. I know people will argue, well... Ring of Honor are building storylines on their weekly TV. Like I get it, but it's clear that Tony Khan does not care about Ring of Honor nearly as much as he cares about AEW, nor should he. But I think at least let it be more independent. Let it be more its own thing, you know, let it have its identity back. Cause at the minute it runs the risk of feeling like AEW light and I want it to feel like Ring of Honor again. And I know that's, I know those like the mid 2000s Ring of Honor times were like, once in a lifetime, you'll never recapture the magic of that period. I get it. It's like ECW, isn't it? It's like, you'll never, it'll never be the same no matter how many times you try and recreate it. But I'd like it to at least pretend to be the same promotion again. Do you know what I mean? I get they've got their own commentary. They've got their own guys behind the scenes and everything, but just make it look and feel different, man. Please, please, Tony, please. Anyway, this show... There were no matches announced until days before the event. Thankfully, the matches they announced were good ones and did turn out to be good. Um, one match that I thought was going to be like an absolute show stealer and maybe my favorite match of the entire month, but then under-delivered, was Claudio Castagnoli versus Pac. I had massive expectations of this match because it sounds like a match of the year contender because it's Pac and Claudio. And it was for a world title. and And all the stuff they did in the ring was spot on. They were brilliant. But the booking hindered, really hindered both guys, I think, rather than helping either of them. Like, I'll explain what I mean, because you may have watched the match and loved it in terms of the action, and I couldn't blame you for that. But where I would where I would criticize this match would be the 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 storytelling and, and what it achieved or what it failed to achieve, in my opinion. Cause I think Claudio throughout looked like the better wrestler. Like Pac was hanging with him, which is fine if you want to tell that story, but he seemed to win like most of the exchanges. Like he dominated the start of the match, going for the quick win. Uh, then Pac took things outside for a brawl out of desperation because he's getting his ass kicked in the ring. So he takes things outside. Claudio wins the brawl on the outside. Pac gets a table out, and later on, Claudio is the one launching him clean out of the ring. Gorilla press through the table, bang. Which one of these guys is we meant to, are we meant to think like? Because I think if you're going to do the whole quick start, one nearly wins kind of thing. Often that should be the, the the face, the challenger doing that, shouldn't it? To get the crowd in. But this just looked like Claudio was just besting him from the start. Um, late on, because Pac did get moments, don't get me wrong, but not as many as Pac should be getting, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm just biased because I'm from his neck of the woods, maybe. But um, at one point, Pac got his submission locked in. Claudio stood up out of it twice. Once to drop him back onto the canvas, Pac held on. I was like, oh, that's cool, he's hanging on. Only for Claudio to stand up, scale the corner, and then drop back down onto Pac, like squash them both. And Pac had his moments, but I think he was done dirty slightly by the way the match was put together. And then you might be thinking, oh, well, you know, at least Claudio looked like a strong champion, which I would agree with if not for the finish. Because no, he needed a cheap distraction from Wheeler Uta to get the win, despite looking like the stronger competitor anyway. So he dominated the match, then got a cheap win. So it doesn't help Pac coming out because he's been battered, and it doesn't help Claudio coming out because he's cheated to win. So I think you could argue that both guys come out of this match looking weaker than when they went in, which is a shame because it was a fun match to watch, certainly, but the story it told, I just fully, fully disagreed with. Couldn't get on board with it. Something I could get on board with was the main event, the women's world title match, Athena versus Willow Nightingale. Yes, indeed. Very good stuff. And this was a little bit the opposite of the previous match in terms of how successfully it was able to achieve its aims because Willow, despite losing, and wow, what a heelish end to the show with the two big heels winning in the end, but Willow looked strong in defeat anyway and Ember looked like a strong champion as well. So this, yeah, both women came out looking better than when they went in everybody's happy. Shout out to Willow Nightingale's parents who were seen in the crowd laughing (laughs) after she was slammed viciously onto the apron. Oh dear, they don't respect this business. They should have looked worried. Um, But yeah, that was an awesome spot as well. And they also had a hard spot to follow because they had to follow a match which had all the plunder in the world, the fight without honor. And they also had to follow Pac versus Claudio, which had, you know, really good action despite me not liking the booking. And despite all of that, I think Ember versus Willow was comfortably the best match of the night. So props to them. It seems online like Willow's getting all the love recently, and rightly so, because she's an amazing baby face with tons of potential. But this was a timely reminder for me as well that, uh, I keep calling her Ember, Athena is one of the most underrated wrestlers around, which is a weird thing to say for the Ring of Honor Women's World Champion. Underrated when you're the, the champion of Ring of Honor. But that belt has never really carried the prestige its name would suggest, has it? And it looks like Athena's making it her mission to really change that and to make this belt a prestigious one. And so far, and if matches like this carry on happening, she's comfortably achieving that goal. So props to her, props to Willow. What a great main event! Seven years seven in the breaking, breaking. Seven, seven years in the shaking, in the shaking. Seven, seven years in the making. making. Welcome, Welcome to North, to North
0: wrestling's, wrestling's biggest show ever. ever. Welcome! Welcome. Welcome to Thunderstruck! He is in pain, he is in trouble, but he is possibly still in control as he waits on Liam Slater. Liam Slater has done everything and Leon Slater keeps getting up. Did you see that? Vader, Liam Slater just beckoned Leon up. He's doing it again. He's telling him to bring it on. He's telling Leon Slater to pull the trigger. There's another. And now pulling Liam into position. Leon Slater looks resigned. He knows what has to be done. Watch the line.
1: But now we step away from America and we focus on the rest of the world. And I have to start with one that I was fortunate enough to attend live North Wrestling, NCL 37, their 37th show, and the biggest one they've ever done, Thunderstruck. If you've ever been to a North show in Newcastle, you'll know how fantastic it is, what a, a great promotion it is in cultivating a passionate fan base, a really great core roster. Wonderful storytelling, great matches. It's just the the total package, if that's what you want in wrestling. This was going to be an interesting one because I think most of their shows are 18 plus, whereas this one was all ages. So I was like, oh, how are they going to, are they going to like tone it down? Are they going to compromise any of the entertainment to appeal to all ages? No, not at all. It was a really damn, damn good show. Um, I'm not just saying that because I know some of the people involved. If you went, you'll know what I mean. It's also available, I believe, on Fight TV right now. And yeah, it was, a, it was a a fantastic event. One of the best, like the most fun I've had at a wrestling show in a long, long time. Really, really enjoyable. And, and I think the success of the show, and I will get to the match I want to talk about shortly, but I think the success of the show really demonstrates the power of three things, really. Um, first, having a talented and passionate roster. Second, having a passionate fan base, which the promotion fully deserved to have, by the way, because they've built it themselves over the years. And thirdly, And this is the one I really want to stress. Full credit to Andrew Bowers, the man behind North, the the kind of the the promoter, the booker, whatever you want to call him, for putting together a really, really clever card. Heading there to the venue, I'd heard there was nine matches and I got a little bit nervous for North. I thought, ooh, that's a big show. Will people get tired towards the end? Are we going to feel a bit drained? Not realising that in his match order and in the match and in his selection of matches to put on the show, Andrew put together... A, a show full of variety which never lagged at any point and I even saw him during the intermission well he was like <laughs> rushing around obviously because as many people were shout out to Fraser as well my colleague here at Hollick, who does work at North whenever I saw him he was rushed off his feet as well everyone involved did an amazing job both the roster and the crew and everyone behind the scenes and all that um, I caught Bowers in the intermission and went to him this match order is looking pretty good like nothing's like what well, I basically said to him nothing's dragging and he said that he'd spent ages agonizing over the order the matches went in. So I'm glad that it wasn't a, like a happy accident. It was a planned, you know, decision to have the show progress as it did. And it really worked. The evening unfolded marvelously well. And it all culminated in the match I most want to talk about the main event for the North Wrestling Championship Liam Slater versus Leon Slater, which was a perfect crescendo. And like an amazing culmination of an organic rise, that of Leon Slater, who was in North, was a tag team guy for a long time. He was one half of the tag team champions, Boisterous Behavior. A team that are still together, him and man like Reese, who's a really talented and entertaining wrestler in his own right. And then they both became kind of, the North crowd kind of took to them. But like Leon's kind of been sort of, Like, there was a show, right, where he'd accidentally, like, knocked a light out. Like, it was quite a low-ceilinged venue at the time. And he did a move off the top and hit the light. And then every time he'd head to the top rope in events after that, the joke has always been people shouting, watch the lights! And it led to this poetic moment towards the end where he goes for this, like, climactic high-risk move towards the end of this title match with Liam Slater, who trained him, by the way. The stories are just everywhere. And as he heads to the top, you hear Tom on, Tom who edits this, by the way, you hear Tom Campbell on commentary going, watch the lights, kid, but reach for the stars. I'm like, what a line. Like, cause it worked with what had happened. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Um, amazing stuff. I would highly, I won't reveal too much about any of the spots or anything that happened in the match or, or anything that happened, but check it out. Cause it's, it's an amazing culmination of a wonderful show. So just watch the whole event. Cause there's comedy matches. There's. Uh, like multi-man fast-paced stuff there's an excellent women's tag match there's uh, an excellent singles match between Rio one of the fastest rising stars in British wrestling right now she takes on Mercedes Martinez Scotty Too Hot there Gangrel like it's just everything you want it to be And and there's more than enough excellent wrestling to back up those big names as well by the way I should stress that but yes if you're going to watch any one match from that night Liam Slater versus Leon Slater for the North Championship it's Phenomenal stuff. I've been a fan of Liam Slater for a long, long time. Met him in WCPW. Really admired what he could do, uh, both as a wrestler and as a trainer, giving advice behind the scenes and stuff. And now I'm a big fan of Leon Slater as well. So I guess it's fitting that we transition from one Leon Slater match to another one, which took place, I think, six days before. What a week this was for Leon Slater. Um, In Rev Pro, Will Ospreay versus Leon Slater. I'll be honest, I took a cheeky little peek at the cage match rating before I watched this one, and it was decent. I think it was like an 8.5 or an 8.6 or something. And this is speaking very broadly here, but when I when I tend to compare cage match ratings with my own opinions on matches, I tend to find that 8.5 is usually really good, but not match of the year, not like a match of the year contender, usually just like a very good match that month. Um, so I was watching this, Certainly, a match that would probably warrant a mention on this podcast, for example, but maybe not necessarily one that would be mentioned in the the like the updated end of year rankings, month on month. Now, I was watching this Osprey versus Leon, and the longer it went on, I was like, they've absolutely nailed everything here. What the hell is going on? This is cruising into my top ten of twenty twenty three, cruising in, and I was like, where did what goes wrong then? Because all I could think was, why is this rating not much higher? And then we got the ending, which again, like Pac and Claudio, I don't think helped the the match really. Like Dan Maloney came out, who I've got no issue with, by the way, um, but he came out, uh, there was a ref bump. He came out, had a little fight with Osprey, and it was to set up Dan Maloney versus Osprey further down the line. Uh, and he was a big factor in the finish of the match. And it kind of, in my opinion anyway, took all the attention away from... The story of the match, which was Leon Slater, this rookie, hanging in there with Osprey, taking it to him, and possibly being about to shock the world, and instead, yeah, it kind of felt like a messy finish. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't like. I don't have an issue with RevPro or anything. I'm glad this wasn't the main event of that show because I think that would have been an immensely frustrating finish to the night. Uh, usually. I think they put on you know, excellent feature matches like this, especially when Osprey's involved. But in this case, it was going so damn well and it was so frustrating to see that be the finish. But you know what? On the other hand, I'm looking at it from a very biased one-show perspective. Like, damn, why wasn't that specific match as good as it could have been? Whereas obviously RevPro will be looking at it like a big picture. We're building towards future stuff. And I fully get that. I just wish that the match could have, Being the full picture that it deserved to be, basically. Uh, Where are we going next? We're going over to Japan and we're heading to Pro Wrestling NOAH, a match which made major waves this month. This was a very, very talked about match. Maybe the most talked about match of the month from Japan, which is massive considering the G1 Climax and the Stardom Five Star Grand Prix are going on, which we'll talk about later on. But this was maybe like the biggest match in Japan this month, which is mad. Um, and it was the main event of Noah's one night dream show in Currican Hall. As I mentioned, it's a venue that's more intimate, um, which was weird in the case of that death match I talked about, but kind of fitting in a way. In this case, it was very weird for a match of this scale and magnitude, which I'll explain in a second, the story behind this match, but then maybe fitting for how personal it is. Ooh, because this was a match between two former Bezzy mates, uh, Nakajima from Noah and Kento Miyahara the ace of All Japan Pro Wrestling. So I'll run through all the parallels and all the storyline elements here. So obviously, as I have mentioned, Miyahara is the top dog in All Japan, but that's... Nakajima's like not the top dog of Noah, crucially. He's one of many. Like Noah's got various top stars at the moment and he's kind of like the bad boy of the group. Um, But I don't think he's like the... He's not what Kento is in All Japan, certainly not. Um, But that's not all. They're former tag team partners. But that's not all. They're former fellow students together under the legendary Kensuke Sasaki. They trained under him. But that's not all. Because Nakajima was slightly older and was the senior of the two students and may have pushed Miyahara around when they were trainees, leading to a deep resentment from Miyahara towards Nakajima. But that's not all. They have very different wrestling philosophies. So Kento Miyahara, in the build to this, has cut promos and given interviews where he's painted Nakajima as a golden boy who was scouted from a young age as a karate prospect and brought into the world of pro wrestling and... He's basically got by on being very, very talented, whereas he, Miyahara, is a true lover of pro wrestling. And wants to represent the, the sport of pro wrestling as well as he possibly can and be exciting and flashy and dynamic. He mentions Hulk Hogan like as an influence and says I want and that's a bit of an outdated take, obviously. but I get what he's trying to I get the point he's making here because Hulk Hogan's like a proper sports entertainment pro wrestler, isn't he? He's a big character. That's what Miyahara wants to be. He wants to be a big, colorful, flashy pro wrestling character, and that's a role he fulfills as the ace, as the top dog in all Japan. And then you've got Nakajima, who, despite actually recently turning face, has had uh, a troubled time in Noah, where he's accidentally shoot-knocked out people before um, and got in trouble for it and is seen as a karate. Well, Miyahara reckons he's a karate guy in a wrestling world um, and he's arrogant and he doesn't respect the art of wrestling. He doesn't see it as an art. And I love that clash of philosophies and I love that story Heading into, um, heading into this big match. And also, despite Nakajima being the one with all the potential back when they were trainees, having all these opportunities given to him, you could definitely argue that it's Kento who has thrived more in his career to the point where he's the ace of an entire promotion. He's unquestionably all Japan's biggest babyface and biggest star, whereas Nakajima, as I say, is just one of many top names in pro wrestling NOAH. But that's not all. Um, because there was a press conference and Miyahara slapped Nakajima as well, (laughs) which sounds like a comical final beat because he slapped him unconscious at the press conference. But given what I've just said about Nakajima, this is Miyahara doing to Nakajima what he has done to people in recent memory, giving him a taste of his own medicine, um, knocking him out with a slap uh, and really setting the scene for this match. In the match, by the way, Nakajima returned that slap and it was definitely a moment where... Kento just crumples from the slap, and it's like, oh, my God. who do? I was thinking, who do I even support here? Because the story leads you to want to support Kento, the ace of all Japan, but this match was like... It was like two wrongs don't make a right. It was like both guys being drawn into the darkness and the hatred that they have for each other, and it was excellent because despite both kind of being faces right now, this match turned them both into dicks in different ways, Because you got Nakajima doing his Nakajima thing, wrestling like a vicious bastard, laying in the strikes. But then you've got Mihara, whenever he gets on top, posing, flexing, taunting. And the crowd are so split. And the crowd, by the way, were immense here. Really, really good. Like they were for the death match with, um, with Moxley and Desperado and stuff earlier on. But this match, the crowd was split. So it was like... Even the commentators mention it. Shout out to the uh, English language commentary team from NOAH, by the way, who always do a wonderful job. Because um, they are saying like, whoa, we've got some All Japan fans here. Kento's well represented. Then you've got the NOAH fans cheering back. All within the confines of Currican Hall, which makes for an amazing atmosphere to this match. The action was incredible. As I say, the main thing I got from it was the hatred that both men have for each other, which was very well conveyed. Um, I would definitely, definitely recommend you watch it. I won't, because I want you to watch it so much, I guess I won't spoil the winner, but it was an interesting choice of winner. And and also, I reckon it's the first of multiple matches we might get over the next year or two because they kept brawling after the the bell, after the decision. So I think they've probably got to run it back, haven't they? Um, Yeah, unbelievable match. I absolutely loved it. Um, It made me a bigger fan of both guys. I already liked both guys, but this is, I think, my favorite singles match I've seen either man have. It was that good. So good. Um, Staying in Japan, but a different promotion entirely. We're heading to DDT for their big title match this month. The champion, Yuji Hino, who I mentioned way back in January on Matches of the Month when he won that belt from Kazusada Higuchi. And I was like, what? What a decision. I didn't think they'd give the belt to Hino. I thought Higuchi was like their guy. And I was very curious about that decision back then, I remember since then he knows held the belt <laughs> and has been a dominant heel champion so i was wrong but this was him defending against chris brooks last time i think on this on this series or maybe the the episode before recently i've mentioned chris brooks winning the big annual ddt tournament and saying how weird it was to see brooks in that context and i think i tried to explain that basically in the uk in the indie scene over here brooks was a a a beloved wrestler outside of storyline, like his fans love him so much, and he inspired amazing loyalty. And you know, always seemed to really care about not just his brand, but care about a legitimate connection with the fans. You can tell that Chris Brooks is a wrestling fan himself, and he got into, he's got into—he's living his dream job basically. Um, but in character, Brooks was always a dick on the UK Independence Man. Like he was always winning via roll-ups, cheating, disrespecting his opponents, being an ass. Because he was a great heel. Then he went over at DDT, carried on doing that. It had an extra element because he was this arrogant foreigner coming in and treating all of his Japanese opponents like that. And it was working really well. Then I think what we realized about Brooks in the u k in terms of his genuine love for pro wrestling and his genuine passion for what he does, and that shines through outside of the ring, even him, even though he's always like was often the heel inside of it. That seemed to shine through in, in Japan as well. People clicked, people realized. And I think the very fact that he chose to, you know, move his life to Japan to, to be a DDT wrestler kind of shone through as well. And he's now suddenly like the biggest baby face in the promotion, legit. Was unusual for an English fan like myself to see, but I can't deny how well it was working. Well, it turned out that was only the beginning because this month he, yeah, he beat, you know, <laughs> he is now the KOD openweight champion in DDT. Um... I don't know if that was something he planned or whether he's fully like surpassed his own expectations of himself. What I will say is, given his work in Japan over the past year or two or three, how long's it been? It seems to be something fully deserved. Um, and the way they did it as well, there was no. This was a simple story expertly told. Babyface versus heel. Brooks is full babyface now, overcoming this strong, mean, unsmiling champion. Who Brooks makes his entrance right. Taking in the moment, looking quite emotional, trying to calm himself down and focus on the task at hand. The champion comes out, right? Yuji Hino stands across the ring from him, flips the double birds, <laughs> like so disrespectful and so much wider and stronger than Brooks. And you just think, wow, this is like the ultimate underdog story. And it was just resting at its simplest not that the action was entirely simple they had a complex and well thought out match and everything this is 2023 they're not going to just do Hogan Andre or anything like that but it wasn't too far from that formula to be honest like Brooks fighting from underneath bravely trying to topple the the more powerful opponent and everything there were loads of strikes as well which against a man like Yuji Hino can't tickle like that has to be a challenge even though wrestling is scripted and everything that's got to hurt still um And Brooks overcame it. And there was a a massive baby face celebration at the end, and it was wonderful to see. Genuinely lovely stuff. The giant panda was there as well. (laughs) Like, all the faces are celebrating with him in the ring. And just out, out of, like, shot from the left of the frame waddles the giant panda, who you've probably seen GIFs of on Twitter and stuff, wrestling, actual wrestlers. Panda comes out, just sort of stands outside the ring, still massive, and it's just one of the faces, one of the roster there while everyone's celebrating with Brooks. Which is just a reminder, like, it's this amazing dichotomy of like this, this incredible emotional moment for Chris Brooks, fully deserving it, winning the belt that maybe he saw as his destiny, maybe he never expected to achieve, we don't know. But there's that, and then it, there's a reminder of the silly side of DDT, which is why a lot of people fall in love with it. Giant Panda's outside the ring. <laughs> oh, there's one more big singles match to talk about before I do a little recap of the tournament action we've seen. And that should mercifully break. This is going to be the longest episode, isn't it? But I did warn Tom, so hopefully he's okay with that. Sorry, Tom. So before we move on to tournament action, I want to talk about uh, a tournament final, which took place in Mexico in the CMLL. Rocky Romero crops up on this series yet again. What a guy. Taking on Mascara Dorada 2.0. Because as it was pointed out to me, I was reminded by Fraser and Aiden. Uh, in the office they were like hang on mascara dorada is just grand metalik isn't it so this is Musca- this is mascara dorada 2 this is the new mascara dorada but he's not related i don't think to grand metalik he's his own man well he's not his dad was a wrestler i googled that but he's a second generation luchador um and he is 20 years old i believe and he is going to be something like he's very very talented indeed This tournament final, similar to the Brooks and Hino story, really, was just pure phase versus heel, uh, but in this case, with smaller, flippier men, and that's great to see. Rocky Romero was slightly more grounded, though, playing the heel, trying to bring down his high-flying opponent, although he did crush him with a suicide dive at one point, which was very stiff indeed. In fact, Rocky battered him here, um, really laid it in, really made his opponent have to overcome him and played a wonderful heel in this one. And... Then Mascara Dorada, despite 2.0, despite being less experienced, fully played his role of the brave underdog babyface who ultimately gets it done in the end and wins the tournament and surely has a very bright future in store. Yeah, I think I found it in my notes here. I think he's 21 years old. Can't wait to see what happens with him. CMLL is stocked with talent at the minute. I love Titán. He had that amazing best of the Super Juniors final with Master Watto earlier this year, didn't he? And I thought I was like, well, Titán's my guy in CMLL. He's my favorite current CMLL wrestler. Now I'm like, maybe this Mascara Dorada 2.0 is giving him a run for his money. And to be fair, maybe Rocky Romero is as well. I don't know if we can consider him like a regular roster member over there, but whenever he's there, he does really good stuff. His feud with Volador this year was excellent, and now this tournament final as well. Rocky Romero doing the good work, doing the good stuff over in CMLL. Nicely done. And presumably doing a lot for inter-promotional relationships between CMLL and New Japan, because as I learned when I was in Japan, Rocky Romero does all the jobs. (laughs) He's not just a wrestler in New Japan, he is the glue that holds New Japan together. And fair play to him. Right, speaking of New Japan, there was a bit of a tournament, wasn't there? Let's talk about the G1 Climax.
0: 暑く静かに燃えた季節を乗り越えて静かに燃え
1: There are obviously loads of matches happening in the G1 Climax, especially since in recent years it's moved to this four-block format, which we can argue the pros and cons of, but it's definitely worse than when there was just two blocks. No, it, it, it allows for more people, doesn't it? But I think it makes it a little bit more predictable. Although, actually, when I run through what's happened so far, maybe that's an invalid point, because there's been some big surprises here with who's progressed from the different blocks. But because there's so many matches, I'm not going to mention like every single thing that happened. I'm going to give a summary of each block, and if there's been any particularly excellent matches from that block, then I'll give it a mention. So we'll start with block A, which I think hasn't been the best block of the tournament, but it's been the most intriguing one from who's in it, because... It's the block with Sonata in, the reigning IWGP World Heavyweight Champion, or just World Champion now. He's the top dog in New Japan, Sonata. But the block also has the three musketeers. Uh, Suji, who last month we saw lose to Sonata in a very good title match. Shota Umino, aka Moxley's little mate. <laughs> so patronizing. He's actually quite a bulky boy now. Uh, He's been in the gym. And the third Musketeer, Ren Narita, who's kind of going down the Shibata route. He's a martial artist. Ow, he kicks really hard out. Stings. So they're the three new Musketeers. Now, if you're not familiar with New Japan history, they had three Musketeers in the 90s who were like these three amazing wrestlers. Um, Chono, uh, Great Muta, and uh, Shinya Hashimoto. And then in the 2000s, they tried to redo that with three new Musketeers, which in the end was successful, but I don't think it was as successful as they wanted it to be, basically. So um, obviously you had Hashimoto, Chono, and Muta, who were all stars in the 90s. 2000s come along, you've got the three Musketeers of Tanahashi, who obviously did then become the ace of the company. That worked out. You've got Shinsuke Nakamura, who went on to become certainly a major star of the company before leaving for WWE. Now, you might be thinking, who's the third musketeer? Is it Naito? Because he eventually became one of the more popular acts in the modern-day New Japan. Was it Okada? He would be the obvious answer, wouldn't he? It was Katsuyori Shibata. He left New Japan and was kind of cast out for doing so. He was kind of regarded as a traitor. And then when he came back, he had to really work his way back into the good graces of New Japan management and the fans, which he did. Got that title shot against Okada, had his horrific injury, almost ended his wrestling career. And he certainly wrestles far less these days. And that's a good thing. Obviously, I'm not saying he should wrestle at the same level he used to. But he never quite, you know, he was a musketeer. He was meant to be as big as Tanahashi, as big as Shinsuke Nakamura. And he he'd never quite got there. And, and then Okada, in fact, became the big star instead. So New Japan are going for the Three Musketeer format again, which is very interesting, because in the 90s, it just sort of happened. It worked. In the 2000s, it partly worked. Will it work again? Because whenever you label someone the next chosen one, you run the risk of them not making it, like Shibata didn't, and then did ultimately, but didn't for a while. So you've got Yoda Suji who looks very promising. You've got Ren Narita, who's very much channeling Shibata in the way he wrestles, the way he looks, the the gear he wears. And then you've got Shota Umino, who's still, you get the sense, they're all figuring themselves out, but I feel like Shota's figuring himself out the most. So you've got all these lads, these are the three musketeers, in the same block with the champion, Sonata, only two people can qualify, and I'm like... Well, none of these new lads are going to qualify then because they've all been put in the same block, which is interesting, but the champ's in their block. And Kaito Kiyomiya's in their block, the lad who I've mentioned several times on this podcast now because he's the guy from Noah who Okada keeps on having these really intense matches or just flat-out fights with. And I thought, well, Kiyomiya's going through, obviously... Because he's going to face Okada in the quarterfinals or the semifinals or even the final. I don't know how exactly the bracket shakes out. And I thought he's going through and then surely Sonata's going through as the champion. Well, Sonata did go through. It wasn't Kiyomiya who went through with him, which is a massive wasted opportunity, let's be honest. I really wanted to see. Like, so has Okada just beaten him and pumped him out and he's not going to get revenge? I don't know. So there was that. I'm hoping that there's more to the Kiyomiya-Okada story down the line. But then none of the three musketeers went through either. It was Hikaleo. Who's fulfilling like the big man role of the tournament, and fair enough if you want to put him through, but put him in another one of the blocks and let someone else go through from the A block. So if you can't tell, because the A block was the one which had by far the most storyline potential in it, I'm very frustrated with how A block's gone. I will mention one match from the A block, Sonata versus Kiyomir, the two that I thought were going to go through, only Sonata did in the end. Because this match had a very nice frantic nature about it down the stretch. Both men scrambling for a win. And then when you'd expect that sort of finish to to end in a draw, Sonata actually got the win with only two seconds left on the clock. So that was a very nice match. Uh, Probably my favorite match of the A block. Um, Sonata went through. He'll face Evil, I believe, in the next round. His former stablemate. So there's a story there with LIJ. But I just think there was more compelling stuff that could have been told. Never mind. Block B has probably been quality-wise the best block of the tournament so far. So I've got a couple of matches I want to mention. Part of that was obviously because this block contained not only Kazuchko, Carter, but also Will Ospreay. Um, It wasn't the best in terms of drama because I think it was quite clear that both men were going to qualify from this group. Although, Like I say, in other blocks, that hasn't been quite so cut and dry. But in this case, it was. They both did qualify. And they both turned in some great performances along the way. Um... One in particular happened in B Block this month, I believe, August, which I'll mention in the next episode. I'll save that for next time. Um, but in terms of July matches that happened in the B Block, Okada versus Chi was awesome. I absolutely loved the story in it. Chi had a wonderful match with Osprey earlier this year and a wonderful match with Osprey. In this B block, actually, but one which I think was eclipsed by their, their singles match from earlier in the year. But Chi had a great match with Okada in this block. And Taichi suddenly become like the... After being the most despicable heel's heel, the Baron Corbin of New Japan Pro Wrestling for so long, he's now the best underdog fighting from beneath babyface in the whole promotion. I don't understand what's happened, but it's been that way for like a year or two now. And it's awesome. The story was amazing. Okada having to pull it out of the bag with like a roll-up rather than overpowering Chi or beating him in the way that Okada usually beats people. He had to pull it out of the bag because Taichi's so heroic and was really dangerous. It was a great, great match. Um, probably the best match in B-Block. And the second best match, I'd say, was Osprey versus Okada. And when you've got a match that isn't Ospreay-Okada, which is certainly some people's, mind included, best match of the block. You know that's a special match. Okada-Taichi. Osprey Omega was... uh, Osprey Omega. Osprey Okada was great. Um, Okada tried to use that roll up again on Osprey, but he popped out at the count of two. Um, And then got the win. Osprey getting a landmark win over Okada. I think he's beaten him once before when he first turned on him and set up the United Empire. But since then, Okada's had the best of Osprey consistently. At Wrestle Kingdom as well, of course. And this was Osprey finally getting revenge on Okada and, and yeah, it felt like a big moment for Will Osprey. C group was the Eddie Kingston group. I feel like New Japan really don't have a sense of fun by not having Eddie qualify from the group because I would have certainly had him do so unfortunately he didn't. Um, the two heels in the group qualified, the two biggest heels, David Finlay, the leader of Bullet Club at the moment and Evil, who I mentioned will face Sonata. Get the ice,
0: get the ice, I can't bend over and get, get, get a pick, 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 I a here
1: I lost. I lost, that's all I can say. I lost. I gotta go. I gotta see the doctor. The, the. I lost. But, you know, it was still a good block. Like, Eddie had a great match with Tomohiro Ishii, which I just saw as Eddie Kingston's big tourist fun trip to Japan getting battered by various men. And Ishii was the man that he wanted to get battered by the most. We've seen them in uh, AW Interact before. Now we're seeing it in the G1 Climax. And it lived up to expectations. Ishii has obviously been slowing down over the past few years, but I think he can still pull it out of the bag when he needs to. And this was an example of him doing so. And it made for a very fun match and a very painful one as well. Ishi got the win, by the way. Um, I don't think Eddie would have had any qualms about putting over Ishii, who I assume is one of his, like, modern heroes. Fair play. Eddie Kingston's my modern hero. I still maintain that Tony Khan should have him beat MJF, but it, you know, I don't know. <laughs> It'd be a shame, wouldn't it? It'd be a shame if it wasn't Eddie Kingston, but that's just my opinion let me know if you agree. Another match in the C block I want to mention was Shingo Takagi versus his big rival this year Hanare. No longer Aaron Hanare, just Hanare, who's now got um quite a uh, like a um what's the, an intricate face tattoo going on which is paying tribute to his ethnicity, his ancestors, his heritage. It looks really cool and it's kind of coincided with kind of a demeanor change in him as well. This match was brutal. It it was very epic feeling. Maybe the most forced epic of all the matches I've mentioned so far, but in the G1, that's kind of excused. And also it made sense given the the tangles they've had earlier this year as well. One of them which was on my top 10 of the year for a while, but has been nudged off now. Shingo, one thing I liked in this match was Shingo's attempt to go into his finishing stretch. And I was excited because I was like, oh, Shingo's got one of the best finishing sequences in all of wrestling probably. Um... And then Hanare stopped him and just kind of dragged him back down to his level and was like, no way, I'm going to take this in my direction. And Hanare's direction was headbutts. So many, which were returned by Shingo. Headbutts were like a theme of this match. Uh, But I think they were done quite safely. I hope so anyway. Jesus. Hanare got the big win. Interesting to see, but neither man qualified from the group, unfortunately. Um, The D block, I I mean, I don't have any particular match. Zack Sabre Jr. and Jeff Cobb had a good match. wasn't really... (laughs) It was maybe the the I don't know if weakest is a fair term, but certainly the the block I had the least interest in out of all four out of all four blocks. If you're going to watch any match from that uh, D block, yeah, make it that um, make it that Zack Sabre Jr. Sorry, I'm just trying to scratch my back. Make it that Zack I can't reach. Make it that Zack Sabre Jr. and Jeff Cobb one. Although they themselves have had a better match between each, between themselves earlier this year for Zack Sabre Jr.'s TV title, I believe. I'm just trying to find out who qualified from Block D. Naito, that was it. Naito and Zack Sabre Jr. qualified from the block. And apparently, the day I record this, I've been told that apparently uh, Naito and Tanahashi have just had a banger of a match. So that will have been like the final day of the block. So I'll have to check that out. But it obviously took place in August. So we'll find out next month wow that was uh, my recap my little recap of the G1 climax in July we'll look at the second half of the tournament next month and see whether it can be deemed a success or not but now there's just a few more matches to talk about from stardom Five
0: Star Grand Prix
1: 2023. <laughs> 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 All of these matches come from the first night of five-star Grand Prix action in stardom. Not because the other matches have been lacking, I just feel like they've been a little bit less intense, whereas night one was so full-on. And if I have any hope for the tournament uh, in August, it's that I hope introduce a bit more night one flavor to the rest of the tournament. I think there has been reports of one or two good matches that I'm yet to catch up on, but it looks like the tournament might have picked up a bit again down the stretch. It's been a good tournament anyway. It's loaded with talent. I just think night one has kind of knocked the socks off every other night so far. The best match of night one, in my opinion, Siri versus Suzu Suzuki. What a match. I think probably my favorite, oh, that's a big shout if I say it, but I'm going to say it, probably my favorite women's match of the year so far. And I think it'll probably, we'll see if it cracks my top 10 at the end of this podcast. Um, It was a great match and an absolute sprint at just over 10 minutes. Stardom tournament matches have a time limit of 15 minutes, which can lead to fast and furious action like in this one. It had all the action of a New Japan style main event packed in to, yeah, like 11 minutes or so. Really, really good stuff. Suzu Suzuki, I've mentioned her before. I think she might be, yeah, I think she's my favorite stardom wrestler currently. She's like an alligator. Like, they go for a handshake at the start, and Suzu just rolls Suri into this, like, terrifying death roll maneuver, like a wheel slam. I don't know how to describe it, but it's amazing. Suri is obviously a former champion of stardom. She's this badass who gets destroyed for a lot of the duration, it must be said. There's that big spot off the handshake at the start, Suzu nearly picking up a flash-shocking victory over a a foe higher than her in the pecking order, just about, for now. But um, she also nails Siri with a a German suplex off the apron to the floor. There are like trainees and stuff there to catch Siri. She doesn't get caught. She lands hard. (laughs) Um, Thankfully, she seemed okay. The match continued, and they kicked the horrible crap out of each other what kind of saying I'm speechless by how good and fast and brutal and swift this match was and what did I say they kicked the absolute horrible crap out of each other yes they did Um, Shuri wins but Suzuki is an absolute prodigy she's 20 years old and for my money she is the best young wrestler in the world today what a match. The rest of the night, this was like the fourth last match on the card, by the way. It made everything else have a lot to follow. The next match, immediately after it, was Mayu Iwatani versus Hazuki, two of the most talented popular stars in stardom currently, and they had a great match, really good, and I would also recommend watching that one. It, it had a very, for me at least, my own viewing experience, it had a, it was it had an impossible act to live up to because Siri versus Suzuki was just that good. Mayu Iwatani and Hazuki are both... Smooth, intricate, excellent wrestlers down the stretch. Like This match had lots of twists and turns, is what I'm trying to say, uh, as it approached the closing stages. But for me, it just couldn't live up to the hard-hitting brutality of Siri versus Suzu. And also, then we had Julia versus Saori Anuo. Uh, Anao? I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. I'm not too familiar with her. Saori. Um, She's a freelancer in Japan, and... Seemed like a really good match for Julia. I wouldn't be surprised if Julia was one of the matches she was brought into this tournament to have. It main event No, it didn't main event the night. It was the penultimate match of the night and it had a different flavor from all the other matches. They took it outside the ring. They took it... They were, they were throwing each other into the guardrail. Then Julia piled... No, then Sayori, uh suplexed Julia off the side of the ramp onto a row of chairs, which was mad. Then Julia got revenge with a tombstone or a pile driver through a table... Um, they got it back in the ring and they were both dead (laughs) and they're both trying and trying to put each other away. Then they start firing up down the stretch, kicking out at one and then time runs out. So a time limit draw, one which was maybe not to some people's taste because it might have been a bit too over the top, a bit too cartoonish in the way that both were recovering from stuff. But I think it was just the right side of believable. I think, in fact, if you enjoyed Omega Osprey 2, which had kind of this sort of stuff going on, You'll enjoy this match as well. Um, And then the main event was really unfortunate. Tam Nakano and Saya Kamatani. Unfortunately, the match had to be stopped about eight minutes in because Saya uh, injured herself. I think she may have dislocated her shoulder or something. Hopefully she's okay. It did bring the event to a sad end because it had been a wonderful, wonderful event. Night one of the five-star Grand Prix up until that point. Um, So we'll have to see where the tournament goes, what the final looks like and all that sort of stuff. But that's all. For next time. Now, without any further ado, it's time for my top ten matches of July. It's a very competitive field this month. This has maybe been the hardest one I've had to do, um, but I think I've hopefully given everything a bit of a fair, a bit of a fair shout, and this is the decision I've come up with. Number 10, Athena versus Willow Nightingale in the main event of Ring of Honor, Death Before Dishonor. Number 9, that match we talked about in Mexico, CMLL. Tournament final, Rocky Romero versus Mascara Dorada 2.0. Heading over to DDT for number 8, Yuji Hino going down, dropping the belt, passing the torch to Chris Brooks. Number 7, Carmelo Hayes versus Ilya Dragunov for the NXT Championship at the Great American Bash number 6 Kazuchika Okada versus Will Ospreay in G1 Climax Action they've had better matches in the past but it's Okada versus Ospreay so even their slightly good matches are actually very good it's an illusion number 5 Kazuchika Okada versus Taichi even better than Okada's match against Ospreay I think what are the chances number 4 Brom Breaker versus Ilya Dragunov my most underrated match of the month certainly I absolutely loved it number 3 Siri vs. Suzu Suzuki in stardom we've just talked about it what an unbelievable bout number 2 FTR vs. Bullet Club Gold 2 out of 3 falls and number 1 my match of the month from Pro Wrestling Noah Katsuhiko Nakajima versus Kento Miyahara and now, my overall top 10. Uh, at 10, we've got Azumi versus Starlight Kid. At number 9, we've got Claudio Castagnoli versus Eddie Kingston in Ring of Honor. At number 8, oh, I've knocked it down a bit in hindsight because I realized that I was, I preferred a different match that was on the top 10. It's the Usos, oh my god, it's the Usos versus Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens main event of WrestleMania Night 1. I still love it, I think it's a great match, but I realized that I preferred uh, the All Japan tag. I'll get to it. Number 7. Suri vs. Suzu Suzuki. Just talked about it from stardom. It's cracked my top 10. It's in at number 7. In at number 6, it's another new entry. FTR versus Bullet Club Gold. 2 out of 3 falls. It's also cracked the top 10. Number 5, the match that I bumped ahead of, in place of the Usos versus It's Kento Mihara and Takuya Nomura versus Yuma Aoyagi and Naoya Nomura in that wonderful All Japan Tag Team match from way back in January. It's got a cheeky boost. <laughs> number 4, Kento Miyahara is back and he's cracked the top 10 with his match this month against Katsuhiko Nakajima. Number three, Osprey Omega 1 at Wrestle Kingdom. Number two, Osprey Omega 2 at Forbidden Door. And number one, and still my match of the year so far, it's Gunter versus Sheamus versus Drew McIntyre for the Intercontinental Championship at WrestleMania Night 2 so there you have it what a breathless end to a very long podcast thank you for sticking with me for what's been oh about an hour and 20 minutes my word although maybe slightly longer or shorter depending on the lovely music that Tom chooses to put in thank you to Tom Campbell as always for editing this show and thank you to everybody for listening along as well share your thoughts with me you can find me on Twitter at Jack the Jobber and I'll see you at the end of August, or the beginning of September, because I need to take into account the last days of all See you soon! Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods,